Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Kale's another one. Kale is another one. Are you a big kale eater? I grow it in the garden. I've got loads of the veg garden. I find it quite hard to digest sometimes. And by that, come on. Let's get down to the number bit. What do you mean? Welcome to another episode of On Jimmy's Farm with me, Jimmy Doherty. And this is the podcast where we discuss environmental issues and try and give everyone a slice of the good life along the way. Now, we've had quite a bit of wind on the farm, so I'm just checking the fence line. Had a big old oak tree come down, smash a fence, which I need repairing. That's the thing, I love big old trees, but when they do come down, they do make a mess. But what I tend to do with the big oaks that if they ever come down or a big chestnut or something like that, as I do clear away some of the branches so we can get past, but I then tend to leave a lot of the logs, the bigger branches, and I let them just sit there and rot. And a lot of people think, well, that's crazy. You should chop that up for firewood. I don't see it like that. I think leave it let it slowly rot because it becomes a huge food resource for endless different species of animals and that's everything from your woodpeckers all the way down to stag beetles the wood lice you know it is just a banquet for all these mini beasts so it's really really important that we leave dead wood to be consumed naturally and create a food resource because all these beetle grubs that will then feed on them become food for all the birds as well. Now, on today's episode, we have got a wonderful, wonderful woman. How would I describe her? I suppose she's almost like my TV wife. And that is the lovely Kate Quilton. Now, Kate's had an interesting career, both in front of the camera, but also behind the camera. She was a commissioner at Channel 4 for a period of time, as well as being a journalist, and then ended up on the other side of the camera where she's had a great career presenting. And she's done everything from panoramas to diet shows, which is a great show together called The Best and Worst Diets in the World. And of course, Food Unwrapped. Now we talk about all different things to do with diets, health, eating, and Kate's got a really good holistic view when it comes to our health. But she talks a lot about breastfeeding, and it's really interesting because Kate's 
view of human health starts with breastfeeding and the importance of breastfeeding but not only that the right to breastfeed and not feel that somehow you should be ashamed of yourself and hide it away so we have a really in-depth interesting chat on that so i hope you enjoy it and i'll see you all back afterwards by the time i've cleared the rest of these logs and made sure the road's clear so i'm sitting here with the lovely kate Wilton in my sitting room with the fire going toasty oh, it is so cozy isn't it lovely it, it, it's lovely it might be a little too hot now though is it a bit weird you sitting here with me talking to you and interviewing you. It is a bit because I guess other times I've been sat in this chair by the fire. I mean, sometimes, Jim, it's been 3am in the morning. I remember you <laughs> sitting over there singing about 3am in the morning. <laughs> I do remember. Oh, Danny boy, there was that time. Yeah, yeah. And oh, that was outside by the river and yeah. then... Yeah. There was another time. You were the... warbling in here, lovely. You're calling them guests. They were guests. <laughs> I can't even but it was good fun. So, so, so you had to actually do work in this space because yeah. usually we're just used to socialising and having fun and but drinking it... whiskey. I which but... I never drink whiskey. It's only you that ever well, coaxes got, me I've into drinking whiskey. I've got the whiskey over there if you want to drop. Look, just I'm looking at it right now, and yeah. just because people are listening to us in their ears and they can't see what I'm looking at, I'll describe. Literally, it's the most delectable shelf of whiskies from around the world. Some of the finest whiskies on the planet. There's about thirty bottles up there. You have an exceptional whiskey collection. I like you know, the thing with alcohol is I love it because it's so delicious. But listen, food on rat. Yeah. How long have we been doing food on rat? Well, do you know what? In uh, May. 22, I will have been shooting that show for 10 years. 10 years. I remember my first shoot on that show just so vividly. I remember it. I remember every bit of it. I remember the contributors. I remember every member of the crew. And yeah, it was in May 2012 that we went to Spain to shoot a story about lemons. Unwaxed lemons. That is it, Jim. See, I wasn't part of the show for the first series. And I remember watching that, watching the unwaxed lemons. And I was like, wow, I've got to be part of this amazing <laughs> rocket ship. <laughs> Out of all that 10 years, what really sticks in your mind that blows you away when you think, I had no idea or really surprised you? One of my favourite stories ever. This was series one. So this was just before you graced us. Mm-hmm. This one was series one. We went to Thailand. And I know this sounds like we travel all over the place all the time we do travel a lot and the production worked really hard on making it work in terms of if we go to a far-flung place then we'll stay there for two or three weeks and we'll shoot three or four stories and get lots and lots of television so we're obviously not kind of just pinging to Thailand for a Mm. day trip for instance but we went to Thailand and I went to see how prawns were bred I remember on the phone at the top of the story we used the question how do you get my prawns so big? I mean, it's funny. It's a yeah. cute show, as in, you know, those questions at the top can sound a bit daft. Yeah, yeah. But it gets you into it. It gets you into it, you know, totally. And there are look, questions that pop into my head as I'm walking around the supermarket. I don't know about you, Jim. Yeah, oh, it's just endless questions in my head when I'm walking around the supermarket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the biggest, biggest surprise was, which we didn't even know this before we got to this hatchery. It was called a hatchery. So the kind of clues in the name as in this is the point at which kind of the prawn comes out of the egg. So it's looking at how do you breed prawns? And obviously you think, well, how does that work? How is it possible to even farm a prawn? And I 
remember what happened was we went into this kind of strange dark place. They were the Thai people that gave us access and were on the ground were very, very strict about you're only allowed to enter at 6 p.m which you can imagine drove our director mad because they want to be shooting all day long. Yeah. They don't want to be shooting in the dark. Yeah. They're like, what is this? I need to see this in daylight. Anyway, they only let us in at 6pm. And when we got in through the door, it was clear that that's because something happens before 6pm that they didn't really want to share with us and they didn't want us to film. And so I'm sat there looking at this massive tank of prawns, probably as big as your living room, big, big tank. And there are all of these prawns whizzing around. And I say, what's in there? And we have a translator and she's translating everything I say. And I'm told that, okay, there are about six stud prawns in that tank. And there are about a hundred or so female prawns. So it's the job of those six massive studs. I mean, literally as big as, you know, from my elbow to the tip of my finger, these ginormous stud prawns that were going to impregnate those hundred females in the tank. And then I was looking closer and I was like, hold on, loads of these girls have got one eye missing. Literally, I'm looking at them now. I'm like, okay, oh, that one hasn't got any eyes. That one's got one eye. That one hasn't got any eyes. That one's got one eye. Like, what is this? This is really strange. Why have they not got two eyes? And then at that point, actually, the camera, there was kind of a hand came in and the camera was pushed to the floor. Wow. Because I'd asked something that... They didn't really want to be asked about. And it materialised that actually in order to breed these prawns, what you have to do is you have to pluck the eye off the female prawn. You have to sever the optic nerve, which then triggers a stress response in the female. And she pushes out her eggs into the water. And then the eggs are in the water and then the male stud prawns can obviously fertilise them. See, that's incredible, isn't it? Because those sort of stories, you pick up a bag of tiger prawns, you'd never think... Oh, so a prawn's eye has been ripped out of its head just to increase its fecundity, to increase the eggs, just so you get affordable prawns. And I just thought that's incredible. I remember watching that and just thinking, I had no idea. And you go into these places. I remember going to a rabbit farm, and I've been to intense farms before, but seeing a rabbit farm, an intense rabbit farm, because we don't eat a lot of rabbit in the UK, but in Spain they eat a load. And I remember talking to this room, and it was just a sea of cages of white rabbits and I thought, that it looked so bizarre. I thought it was like some sort of magician's convention. Do you know what I mean? White rabbits everywhere. It's really strange. But one of the fascinating stories for me, it started off about cod. And we looked at, I think it was either cod liver oil or something like that. It started off as a food story and it ended up as a medical story. And it was about taking cod skin and decellularizing it. And it's then put on people with ulcers. They can't really cure them because the skin won't form back over the wound. But by putting the cod skin over it, it creates a framework that skin can grow over, like a scaffolding. And all of a sudden, I speak to this lovely lady, and she's like, do you know what? A couple of months ago, I couldn't get out of the bed. I couldn't walk. Now, through the use of this cod skin, I now can walk. I've got a normal life. And that's what I love. It turns from a food story into something, you know, it snakes off into different areas. I always like all the farming stories and I like the factories and looking at ingenious machines and stuff like that. Yeah, you love the kind of engineering stuff. I love all that. I sit there there with my mouth open. It pushes your buttons, doesn't it, Yeah, or when you see like a river of chocolate or you see a machine wrapping up millions of sweets. But I love all the kit. You love all the stories on the superfoods and food Yeah, trends. yeah, because that stuff has always, always kind of interested me the most in terms of, you know, how 
do you eat the healthiest diet and looking at people we had the absolute privilege of making that amazing show once called world's best diet oh yeah where we went around the world to find out okay who's living the longest what are they eating yeah but with sometimes with superfoods i've got a slight problem as soon as they call them that superfood because i think what we like to do as a society is try and pluck out all the tidbits and somehow you build them all together to create the ultimate diet but actually when you look at the foods in context they're part of a culinary culture or when you take them out they sometimes don't really work in isolation quinoa great example right quinoa yeah you know the fact that it's become this kind of you know global phenomenon people suddenly why do people love it so what's so important about quinoa i mean i just i get stuck in my teeth well (laughs) i mean it is a great food and it's high in the thing there's a lot of protein in there you know, if you're going for a grain, basically it's a very, very nutritious grain if you compare it with, say, just rice. Yeah. But where you've got to now is that because everyone globally has gone mad for it, that the people that grow it in South America are having to eat less nutritious yeah. crops because they get such a high price for their quinoa. Yeah. And then those kind of, you know, global economics start to distort little pockets where they do have these amazing diets because they do eat quinoa as part of a balanced diet with everything else and obviously it's not just diet it's lifestyle also that it's all part of longevity along with genes too the super is like if there's kale's another one kale is another one are you a big kale eater i grow it in the garden i've got loads of the veg garden i find it quite hard to digest sometimes and by that come on Let's get down to the number bit. What do you mean? Does it play havoc well, with your tummy? Does it hurt well, if you poo? Yeah, I'd not. Uh, it's just <laughs> it's a bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a coarse thing. I know the cows like it. Yeah. Um, but it's because it's all in the cabbage family. I don't know. I have to cook it down and I chop garlic and put garlic through it. And Yummy. You, you, know, you have to do quite a lot to it. Yeah. But yeah. it's a great winter vegetable. But, yeah, I find it quite tough going. I mean, kale has got a big rep, hasn't it? Massive. I mean, so it's got such a following that people that, even printed it? kale on T-shirts and jumpers. Do you yeah, remember that, why, like, yeah, hoodies with kale written on? cabbage or sprouts or something like that? So there are some unique things about kale. So I do remember, actually, when we made all of those shows, we made three series of superfoods. So the thing with kale, it is pretty much one of two of the healthiest things you could buy in the supermarket. Really? So it is really up there. It's definitely worth putting into your diet. But guess what the other one is? This is the surprise. Sausages. Wouldn't you love that, Jim? No, unfortunately not, Jim. Is it bacon? (laughs) No, it is watercress. Oh, right, yes. So, you know, the kind of nutritional profile of watercress is exceptional. It's really exceptional. And it just doesn't quite have the reputation that kale does. Interestingly, so there's a good story about watercress. So, allegedly, I mean, there are scraps of evidence around this, but Hippocrates, right, when he built his first hospitals, he built them, obviously, near running water because he needed the running water. But also, there was another reason why he wanted to be by running water because that is where watercress grows. And he would basically, essentially, medicate his patients, issue them with a handful of watercress every single day to eat. So it's that nutrient-dense. Yeah, see, I love that, but Britain's got a big tradition with watercress, and it died out. So all these beautiful watercress beds that you find all in these lovely chalk streams, and there would be cut and packed and straight off to London on the trains that were set up specifically to take watercress to market. And because it's so 
good for you. It's so rich in minerals, but also it's really high in calcium. Mm. It's really high in calcium. And it's one of those foods that are part of our culture. And you get it now in salad bags, but we should be eating loads of watercress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the difference between watercress and kale, like you say, kale's a bit tough and a bit tough on your bits and bobs, right? But watercress, you know, you will eat raw. Oh, You're much cress, more likely to eat raw. Watercress is a delight. Which means that for things, for volatile vitamins, vitamin C... Those kind of things, when you heat, you know, vegetables, cook them, you're going to lose. But with watercress, obviously, you're just eating it raw, which is brilliant. So I eat a lot of watercress. That's definitely something that I always would say, hey, just always add that into your diet because it's something you can just have in the fridge. And yes, you might have to eat it quickly-ish, but just bung it on anything. If you're eating a sandwich or whatever, just throw it in, you know. Bung it through soup, stir it through soup, you know, stir it through pasta, anything. It's lovely. And also it's got that lovely peppery Mm. taste to it. That flavour comes through. And a bag of watercress, delicious. Bag of kale, really good for you. Got a bit more work cut out there. The great thing about kale, though, honestly, its reputation is not unfounded. We went to Germany to meet these doctors doing amazing work around macular degeneration. So that's where people, particularly later in life, it's going to happen to the best of us, probably you and I, our eyes are going to degenerate. And we met this doctor who had focused all his work on kale. And it was really amazing. He had these patients coming in and he was literally prescribing them kale. He said, eat kale daily and you are going to halt your macular degeneration. And it worked. Isn't that amazing, right? Now, imagine if doctors were given that training in nutrition. Because when doctors train, they get very little training in nutrition. And if you think sort of over 80% of the conditions coming into the GP is diet-related. But, as, you know, and so what you'll get is, like, oh, I feel really, well, here's some antibiotics, or here's blah, blah, blah. What if they could prescribe you eat kale? Or you should have some watercress, or maybe have a nice grass-fed piece of beef, or... I prescribe that you need to spend a week in the countryside or go fishing, mm-hmm. relax. Mm-hmm. That would be amazing. Mm-hmm. And what is required is really systemic change to kind of bring that about. Because, you know, GPs do their absolute best, but they've got 10 minutes to talk with a patient yeah. about what is the problem. So if you think, well, I'm busy life, super stressed, it's affecting my eating, I've got IBS, I can't eat this, kind of that, your nutritional levels drop then your immunity drops, then you get ill, you've got bacterial infection, go to the doctors, his antibiotics, where in fact, if you went back and went, actually, you need to de-stress, go for a nice country walk, relax. The idea of having a hot, whatever it is, having some alternative, get a better diet, Mm-mm. rather than lots of antibiotics. I've got a couple of friends at GPs. And also, you know, when you say get a better <laughs> diet, like that is very hard to even quantify yeah. and... You know, we've kind of, I mean, dedicated our lives to that and we're like in it and we spend our days shooting stories about it and researching it. But it's very muddied, you know. I think if I think about my dear old dad who's up in heaven, bless him. Completely. And also you don't want to feel that... Say to him, eat a good diet. He doesn't even know what it is really. No, but the idea of somehow you're condescending. When I say a good diet, it's basic foods like whole Mm -hmm. potatoes and carrots and simple stuff. Not like go and buy some posh cheese from a farm shop or whatever. It's really simple foods. But I think... I've got a couple of friends that are GPs and they say it would be great if we could prescribe things like that. It would take the stress off of us because a lot of the problems are to do with your environment you're living in and the food you're eating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's it, you know, it's cooking for yourself. It's getting unhooked off the processed foods, which it's, I guess, just modern life really has kind of driven us down that route, hasn't it? I mean, for instance, like 
you know, I think about our life at home. I have the absolute privilege of factoring in enough time into my life to cook three meals a day. And I say cook three meals a day because usually in our house with my kid and what he kind of likes to eat for breakfast, it is cooking. It's a porridge or he loves pancakes and we throw loads of things on. And that is, that's a lot of time. Yeah. You know, that's at least two hours a day. At least two hours. Maybe, you know, three with the cleanup and everything else. And that's just something that people don't have. If both parents in a family or, you know, in a single parent family, you're having to work a 40 hour week, it's kind of impossible. And so then... It's hard. And you watch so many programmes on TV when you go, oh, you should do loads of batch cooking. And I say it myself and... Yeah. Oh, this is what you should do and get your chicken carcass and turn it into a soup and blah, blah, blah. And that's all true. But when you're living a really busy life, it's like, oh, come on, I haven't got five minutes to stop for myself. But it's whatever you can do. Whatever mm. you can do can make a big difference. You, know, mm-hmm. you don't have to be all singing or dancing. Even if it's at the weekends, you take time to do something special or cook proper food. All those sorts of stuff. Or it's an omelette with yeah, vegetables. Yeah, completely. Because you, you know, in the world of TV, it can so easy to be preachy and everyone's saying, oh, we should be doing this. Because everyone wants people to have a better life and eat better and all the rest of it. But it can feel a bit condescending sometimes. Mm-mm-mm-mm. You know, here's someone else telling me what to do, mm. what I should be doing, all the rest of it. And we do a lot of diet shows, don't we? So that whole thing of the new fad diets and all the rest of it, what do you think about dieting? Because sometimes I've gone, oh, I've got to reduce what I'm eating because of the environment or change what I'm eating. So I try and eat less rice. That's what I try to do for the environment because rice produces a lot of methane and then we have to import it and all the rest of it. So I'm thinking, maybe I'd eat less rice or you make certain decisions. Or although I produce meat and we have a livestock farm, I try not to eat meat every day. So I think we eat meat three times a week. And so you do make those sort of choices. But when it comes to diets, do you ever partake in that? I'm going to go on this diet. I'm going to do that diet. So with the goal of what? Losing weight, changing shape, that kind of thing. No. No. As... Have you in the past though? Because there's a lot yes. of pressure. There's a lot of pressure. Yes, to do yes, it. yes, right. So I definitely had a kind of epiphany in my 20s around diet. Prior to that, I was raised in a house where my mum raised four kids. My mum and dad divorced. Dad's still very much part of our lives. But, you know, we all live with my mum. My mum started a career late in life. I think I was nine years old and she was a social worker. So it was a struggle. I just remember regularly just eating out the freezer, making my own dinners. Oh gosh, and she will listen to this because bless her, she's very supportive of both you and I, Jim. She's she's lovely. (laughs) She will listen to this. Mum, 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 I'm just saying that you, you had a very full and busy life and you're trying to hold down a job and look after loads of kids, run loads of kids around. I mean, you've got four kids. I don't know how people do it. I've got one kid and me and my husband definitely feel like we're kind of just about treading water most of the time. So, yes, my diet was terrible then. I think, as in, I ate probably a lot of processed foods. I didn't really know what constituted a very good diet. And I think probably my experience mirrors quite a lot of people. Like, say, if you go back to, like, my nana, bless her, who in the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, she was cooking for eight children every day, right? So there were 10 people in her house total, and they had to do shifts to get everyone around the table, But she bought the food every single day from the shops. She cooked entirely from scratch. Good kind of, I guess, what you'd consider honest grub, Mm. just whatever it might be, loads of vegetables. Maybe if they had a bit of extra cash, maybe sometimes a bit of meat as well, but not much meat at all. So actually really 
really good diet, very yeah. healthy, big vat of porridge just on the stove in the morning for breakfast for all those people. But then my mom going through kind of 70s, 80s, being influenced by, I guess, a big boom in convenience foods, mass processing happening, finding, oh, wow, I can literally buy this thing out of the freezer, put it in my freezer, bung it in the oven for half an hour and feed my family of six. It just really, really changed, I think. It do, and then I think it was like once Pandora's box is open, it's hard to get out of it. Because in our household, it's like my dad was a builder, bricklayer, and he would make, like, if we get home from school, we'd have ham, egg and chips, but he would make the chips. And I remember the egg frying away and proper ham, or we'd have a stew, and he had porridge every morning. And it, was, it interested my dad, because he always made his sandwiches in the morning, brown bread and tuna. Or it was the, I suppose he had corned beef was the major processing we'd have had. But we had sort of really quite simple food. And then I remember the sort of early 80s and stir fries came in and you had a stir fry sauce. It was like, wow, stir fry. Spaghetti bolognese with everything that my mum could hide into it. It's like an Italian story. It's like, one, you wouldn't eat spaghetti with bolognese, but two, it's got big chunks of carrot and a bit of parsnip in it or something like that. But that was just using up whatever. But that sort of everything from pour-on sauces that harden on your ice cream to Finder's pancakes or whatever they were. I mean, that sort of obliterated Angel a lot delight. of our, our food, didn't it? And, yeah. and no wonder there's need for diets. But I've always avoided that sort of drink this shake or do this thing or whatever. People really look for it though, don't they? They need help if they want to lose weight and they turn to these diets. And often they're worse for you. Well, I mean, it's one of the biggest industries on the planet. And you've got to think about that. Okay, so why is it continually making billions and billions and billions of pounds? And why do people feel like they are perpetually on a diet and on a diet for all their life? Which, bless my mum, she probably feels like that. And that's because it's not working. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work, you know. So it's like, okay, so why is it not working? What do I need to do? And it's about changing your lifestyle. It's kind of resetting what your norm yeah. is. Yeah, there's no easy fix. There's no easy pill, is there? Eat this, drink this shake, you're going to look like... No. And some of them you're much worse off for as well. Yeah. And yeah, uh, we've lived through quite a lot. I mean, do you remember the old cayenne pepper Beyonce one? Oh, yeah, my mum still has cayenne pepper. <laughs> for that? It's like cayenne so. pepper, maple syrup, yeah. lemon juice. She has it on the chips. Some, I mean, some people were just consuming that. And then I've made programs, I guess, around this kind of stuff. And some of them are very harmful. I mean, yeah. we made one about apple cider vinegar because that was a big trend. I guess it's not so big now, but a couple of years ago, lots of young people particularly kind of basically chasing these yeah. shots of apple cider vinegar, bunging them in before they ate, burning their esophagus That's with right. this vinegar. It's crazy, but we do look for that, or we look for either a saviour when it comes to food, or something that's going to solve our problems, or we demonise something else. So one minute it's going to be cured meats, bacon, oh, that's going to kill your stone dead. I was like, well... I knew that one was going to come out. The Roman Empire (laughs) ate lots of cured meats, the Italians, the Spanish, they're not all dropping like flies. Or gluten, you know, gluten's like, oh, it's the devil. Yeah, gluten's demonised. It's just a protein. And all these gluten-free foods... And it's interesting, I spoke to one nutritionist, he said, unless you've got a condition, unless you're celiac, there's no reason for you to have gluten-free food. Mm. And he was a celiac, and he said, I hate being a celiac, I'd want to eat all this amazing food, but I can't, it plays havoc. But yet, it's one condition that we seem to all diagnose ourselves. You know, the idea of you go to the hairdresser, go, oh, my tummy's a bit, 
up and down. Oh, you're probably gluten intolerant. Oh, right. And then you just cut out all these foods. And mm-hmm. it might not be the gluten. It might be something within a food or something mm-hmm. or your stress that's causing the problem. But all of a sudden, it's given birth to this mass industry. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the gluten food that you have, because it hasn't got gluten in it, they have to replace it with something else to have the same binding effect or structural effect on food. And it's packed full of loads of other stuff like sugar and mm-hmm. loads of other processed mm-hmm. fats that you don't need. Mm-hmm. 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 And yeah, things that you actually wouldn't consume. Yeah. Full stop. You just wouldn't. You wouldn't. And they're kind of, you know, introduced as a kind of whole new food, really. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. We are getting back to a state now where we're seeing how important the environment is and it's come through a crisis where we go climate change and we need to re-engage with the natural world. But go back four generations and people were connected to the land and they understood these things. That's why all these old sayings and folklore and all these things grew out of our culture because we had a connection to the natural cycles. You know, you did things that were right at the time. You know, make hay when the sun shines. That's not about enjoying yourself in summer that's about making the most of the harvest so you're ready for the winter mm-hmm. you know all these sorts of things now i want to talk to you about something that's really controversial for a lot of people for you it's totally natural i've obviously got four kids i've never breastfed my kids but michaela has and we did it to a certain good age. to hear good to good hear, to hear. <laughs> but i'm involved in obviously natural cycles of animals running a farm and so when our piglets are born we let obviously the mother breastfeed them, suckle them on her teats, and that's really important for me. Commercial pigs that they're weaned about three weeks, we wean ours around eight weeks, maybe longer. The cattle, it's a fairly natural system where the calves suckling from their mums, and then we separate them around six months, but they get all the nutrients they want. Most people, when they're breastfeeding at home, it's all about getting off the boob as soon as possible, isn't it? It's all about, right, get the whole powdered milk into them. Because we did a little bit of formula and then it's cow's milk and all the rest of it. For you, that shouldn't be the norm. Well, I guess, do you know what? I'm going to literally set it out now in terms of, because it is controversial, right? And this whole area is very, very emotive. And I guess my endeavours in this space really are to do this one thing, which is communicate to women that wherever they've got to in their breastfeeding journey it is not your fault okay it's not down to the individual responsibility in terms of where they are at or when they had to give it up because all the statistics point to the fact that 
a lot of mums want to breastfeed. So ultimately they approach kind of the birth of their baby and they think I want to breastfeed. And then it's pretty horrendous, the percentage of mums that stop because they haven't got support, they're struggling, they feel like they can't do it, there's issues, there's tongue tie, a catalogue of problems. And so they feel like then they have to move on to formula or resort to formula. And so really the reason why I've made the programs that I have in this space, it really is to kind of explore why have we got some of the lowest breastfeeding rates on the planet in this country, which is shocking. And look at the reasons why. And every time we literally reach the same conclusion, which is it is not down to the individual. It's the way the whole system is set up. Yeah. So fundamentally, you know, I mean, up and down the country, it used to be the case many years ago, there were breastfeeding support services that were financed by the government. Those have literally just been picked off one by one and have all pretty much withered away by where I had my baby, which was Tower Hamlets in London, which is one of the most deprived boroughs of London. And the trust in that borough decided to still put aside a bit of cash for a breastfeeding support service. So I had in my flat, I had a really rough ride of it. And I had this absolute angel. Her name was Martina, this Irish angel who out of the blue knocked on my door just to see how I was getting on breastfeeding. And there's me, never done it before, said to her, I think it's going okay, I think. You don't have a clue. You actually don't have a clue. Like, you've never been through that process. You don't know if it's working. You don't know if your baby's happy. You're just recovering from labour. It's all a bit bonkers. Anyway, she said, oh, okay, she's a lovely Irish lady. Okay, then, well, let me just have a little look whilst you're uh, here. Terrible Irish accent. <laughs> my dad was Irish. <laughs> that was terrible. Anyway, showed her my boobs. She looked at my nipples. She went oh, Jesus, Mother of Mary, that is not normal. They were kind of bleeding. She was just like, no, this is not normal. And I know that you think you should be in some pain right now, but you're clearly in a lot of pain and it shouldn't be like that. Anyway, she visited three times that week. Wow. So I had this absolute luxury of her visiting in person three times to my flat that week. And then I was in constant dialogue with her for the next two months. See, that's amazing, right? But when we talk about breastfeeding, a lot of people say, well, actually, you know, it's not a big issue. Breastfeeding, it's natural. We all get that. But what you do when it comes to breastfeeding, you've been breastfeeding for quite a long time. And I think (laughs) for the vast majority... Oh, is that the controversy, Jim? Well, the vast majority of people would be, hang on a minute, you're still breastfeeding. Yep. But what I find interesting is when we talk about get back to nature and being more natural and all the rest of it... That makes sense in a way because it's how children should be fed. But how old is your... My little boy. Little boy now and he's he's still breastfeeding. So he's three and a half. Okay, so he's three and a half. Yeah, you can pick your jaw up now and bring it back to the top of your mouth. And I'm I'm aware of this because I know him really well and we see each other a lot. But for a lot of people, and I've said to friends, you know, oh yeah, I've got a friend that's still breastfeeding at three and a half. They're like, what did you say? But... (laughs) Is that a common reaction? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll keep it brief because, oh my goodness, I could literally talk for England on this topic, right? So just for starters, the World Health Organization recommends that you breastfeed exclusively for six months. And it says you can breastfeed for up to two years and beyond, right? That's the wording, two years and beyond. So in my head, you know, we made a documentary about breastfeeding, You know, I kind of had a seat at the table with the experts in this space globally 
around why it's so important, what the benefits are, why our rates are so woeful, you know, and the impact of the formula industry on all of this and obviously monetization and the rest of it, you know, it's a $70 billion industry. That's the formula industry. And so I had a seat at the table with all these amazing minds. And I guess I just thought, I literally approached it on a day-by-day basis, right? I had no goals because I'd recommend to anyone don't really put any pressure on yourself. Don't have a goal. I'm going to do four months. Oh, I'm going to do six months. I'm going to do a year. I'm going to do two years. That's just pressure, you know? And you don't know because actually some little babes as well will tell you themselves that they don't want to breastfeed anymore. You know, that's happened to a lot of friends of mine where the babs just like, do you know what? I love food and I'm off the boob now, at whatever age it might be, you know, one year, 18 months, whatever. So yeah, I wouldn't set any goals. For me, It just so happened that we were bobbing along happily. We're approaching two years. And that was kind of, I thought, well, that's the World Health Organization recommendation, you know, and we're getting along fine. And that's kind of how our life works. And it works fine for us. Then at that point, COVID hit. Then I was still in touch with all of these amazing scientists that I'd made these programs with. And they got wind that I'd possibly got COVID very, very early. And I did because my husband went down with COVID about the week before the first national lockdown. March 14th, I returned from work on a Saturday and I saw him on the sofa. I'd never seen him looking so terrible. Called my producer because we were meant to film the next week to finish off a series. And that was it. We were locked in the flat for three weeks. And it was really touch and go with him. He got really, really sick. Anyway, the scientists that I was working with had got wind that, okay, well, I'd been exposed to COVID had I got COVID or not, they didn't know there weren't any tests at that point, but they recruited me onto a study at Imperial College where they'd recruited 30 mums with suspected COVID because we were still in the suspected realm because there weren't tests at that point. I'm still figuring out the testing of it. And they took a sample of my blood and they took a sample of my breast milk to test it for antibodies. And so I found out pretty much two months into this whole pandemic that I had COVID antibodies in my breast milk. So then I'm sat at home, locked in, not going to work, thinking, okay, I mean, not knowing how this thing's going to play out, but just knowing that I got COVID antibodies on tap for my kid. Of course I'm going to continue breastfeeding. Why wouldn't I? Do you know what I mean? It makes perfect sense, that, doesn't it? That's an amazing story. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was probably one of the first people in the country to kind of even get wind that these studies were going on. And yes, you've got kind of whispered to me because they hadn't finalised the papers. We could have bottled that stuff. We could have made a fortune. We could have posted that to Trump, (laughs) couldn't we? Exactly, exactly. So you're told that, hey, you've got this amazing stuff in your boobs. So we carried on and we're also locked in and it was part of my kid's life. And I mean, look, here we are. The time's crept up on me, to be honest. It's three and a half. I breastfeed in before bed and that's it. You know. Isn't it interesting, right? Because in farming, we've known that kind of thing for years because we talk about herd immunity. If I look at my cows, is that we try and keep breeding stock on rather than by breeding stock in because you're creating herd immunity and all the antibodies the calves are getting from their mum but what we have to do in a controlled system is that we have to wean them at six months because if we don't then we want to get the cow back in calf again and the colostrum will come through which is the first bit of the milk with all the real antibodies in and if that old calf is still knocking around it'll carry on suckling and get all that goodness yeah. not for the new calf well that's it you told me that when my little boy was about a year old you were like hey if you want to have another kid yeah. he's got to get off the boob because yeah. you know you can't have him having all the colostrum plus are you even going to get pregnant yeah 
this is how Jim and I... This is how we talk. talk. I mean, he literally <laughs> talks to me like I'm one of his cows. Yeah, and I had you in the trailer at the time, didn't I? And then I was like, you can't come out of the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to coax me out with a carrot. Yeah, but an ear taggy. <laughs> come, come on, Kate, you've got to go to work. Here's a carrot. See, um, but it's only our social constraints that make us look at it in a strange way. Because when people hear that you're still breastfeeding at three and a half, in their head, the ones who remember the sketch show will be saying, Bitty, do you remember... Bitty where David Williams was breastfeeding. Breastfeeding as an adult. Adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and even recently on Channel 4, breastfeeding my boyfriend. Yeah, but it was seen as like controversy, isn't it, really? Oh, 100%, 100%. And do you know what? I remember even when we made the breastfeeding doc, do you know what? I remember I had the first meeting with some TV executives three weeks postpartum. So my little tot was tiny. And I do remember a TV exec saying to me, okay, so yeah, you're going to breastfeed, but you're not going to feed them when they're walking and talking, are you? And my instant reaction even then was, oh, oh no. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I guess that's how I felt then. But then things change. People change, circumstances change. And I guess when it comes to parenting full stop, I kind of never expected to walk the path that I've walked at all. So yeah, look, I breastfeed at three and a half and I co-sleep. Another thing Jim has regularly (laughs) said to me, you need to get him out the bed. And he's, you know, you might be right. But I didn't expect to be here. And I guess I've literally just kind of followed my instinct of being pretty child-led. Yeah. Which again was never a conscious decision. It's just, I guess, the kind of little person that also popped out because you can't parent all babies the same as well no, because they're no. all different it, individuals. There's endless books written on the subject matter of how you should bring your kids up and what environment, all the rest of the kind of stuff. But I think whatever works for you yeah. is the way to go. I mean, it might have certain consequences. The idea that with our girls, we're like, okay, we're not having all sleeping in the bed all the time because it's all about boundaries. No, you know, you can't keep them coming out. Mum and daddy. And you've got four. And also getting to work and all that if you're not sleeping and stuff. So you create these constraints within your environment that sets sort of rules down, I suppose. But what I find interesting is that the idea we somehow view it as a bit abhorrent, the idea that it's still breastfeeding at three and a half. And you were talking earlier about even going to the doctors and the doctor going, you're still breastfeeding, even the medical profession, them having this idea. Mm. But breastfeeding in general, things have got better, but I've watched people breastfeed at a train station or in a waiting room or wherever it is. And things have got better, but I've watched other people staring at them going, what on earth's going on? I mean, or, or go, you can't do that here, as if it's an unnatural thing. Mm-hmm. It's a strange phenomenon, isn't it, really? Absolutely. I mean, in a nutshell, okay, just to, again, stress why, if mums out there are feeling pain listening to this, because they're like, oh, God, you know, when you want to breastfeed and can't for whatever reason, you know, you experience, like, a traumatic event. It's really, really hard going. And so... I'll just go through the reasons why we've got such low breastfeeding rates in the UK. I mean, we've got the lowest breastfeeding rates on the planet to age one. Wow. On the planet. At just six weeks of age, 34% of babies are breastfed. So the reasons why is basically it's these cultural attitudes towards it. So I guess we're prudish. Here in the UK, lots of people can't quite handle seeing it. I myself had a lot of people... I said, you know what, I say a lot. 
there were three occasions in the first year of breastfeeding when people came up to me and said, you shouldn't be doing that here. You should be at home. You should be behind closed doors. That's crazy, isn't it? Mm. And you've got to be quite strong to front that out. You kind of have to be. Yeah. And I was quite, especially in the early days, it happened when my little baby was only five weeks old and I was on a park bench. And I was really grateful that my husband was there with me to kind of back me up. Because you're in a very vulnerable state when you first have a baby, you know, and that's the last thing you need. Which, so I will add, if you ever see anyone breastfeeding in a cafe or anywhere, you will be an absolute hero if you literally just get them a glass of water, take it over to them, and why not buy them a piece of cake and just give them that as well? Honestly, yeah. Yeah. it's the nicest thing. Yeah. We should be kind of nurturing these mums that are doing their absolute very best in probably what is, you know, some of the hardest months of their life when you're getting used to being a mum and doing all of that and really doing these kind of new behaviours which we've got issues with. It's obviously now not only a mission for you that you want to do the best by your little chap but also the idea that you want to get that message out there for other mums to go you know there is another way you don't have to feel ashamed. And I will at this point say that I'm not an anomaly globally so 44% of three-year-olds around the planet are breastfed. Yeah, yeah. So in this country, I'm in the point naught, 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 whatever, 1%. But globally. But globally. It's the norm. Yeah, and people can say, oh, that's because in developing countries, they live differently and whatever else. No, it's not that. I mean, the World Health Organization recommendation stands whichever country you're in. And for you, it's about being natural and part of the natural cycle, natural system. And it's funny now, people say to me, well, why do you breastfeed them at three and a half? I'm like, well, do you know what? If he'd have said, because yes, he does talk, if he'd have said a year ago, no more, of course we wouldn't be doing it. But it's part of kind of the fabric of his daily life. He gets a huge amount of comfort from it. And it's funny because some people say, why are you feeding now? I mean, that's just for comfort. But hey, just for comfort, if something's going to comfort your child, like, that's a great thing, isn't it? That's a great thing to have in your back pocket. I honestly still feel like it's a superpower that I literally have in my, well, top pocket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because people have preconception what someone would be like if they're breastfeeding their child for this length of time. And it is a stereotype. Yeah. But... You haven't changed since I've met you and you've just carried on. And it's just a natural process. And then also now, you've moved out of the city because you lived in Brighton, then you lived in London, back as a force in London. Now yeah. you're back as a country girl. You live down the road. I live down the road. That's why I had the absolute pleasure of just coming to your house this morning. It's lovely. I looked at your Instagram. How's your wild swimming coming on? <laughs> oh my God, I love plunging into cold water right (laughs) not the video that i saw (laughs) but i don't watch him we're close enough to start some kind of early morning cold water plunge well let's do it tomorrow do you fancy whiskey now (laughs) well there we go that was the lovely kate quilton it's always a pleasure catching up with her I've got to say, she always looks really, really glamorous. She's always got amazing clothes on and a barnet, a hairstyle that is just second to none. It's a bit like Dolly Parton in a way. It's incredible. But she's great fun. And I thanks very much, Kate, for coming on. But listen, guys, if you enjoyed the episode, please like, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts because it really does help new listeners find us. And I will join you again back on my farm for another episode of On Jimmy's Farm.